Well, hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving. Um, I know I did a great chance to just eat more food than I should, and now trying to hit the treadmill a little bit again to catch up on the backside. Um, And one of those things that I was thinking of this week, even as we find ourselves continuing on in the Gospel of John, is just how much we go through life almost feeling like there's things that we do, and uh, at a point they get frustrating, they get hard, they get exasperating, and we might even be tempted to just say, why bother? Have you ever had one of those moments? I know I have. A couple of years ago, my wife and I, we decided um, out of, I don't know, a, a mixture of boldness and ignorance to remodel all three of our bathrooms simultaneously. Yeah, I know. It deserves a laugh. Exactly. So we took a one one hour, a one one hour tiling class at Home Depot and felt aptly prepared to do this endeavor. Uh, so we set out and we thought we'd knock this out in about two days. We'd probably spend about 500 bucks and everything would go swimmingly. Needless to say, triple all of those estimations and a lot of frustration, exasperation, and confusion later. And we finished with some remodeled bathrooms. But let me tell you, along the way, there were all sorts of moments of removing toilets and replacing vanities and pulling up tile and cutting them to fit just right, where we found ourselves in the excruciating process of learning a new skill and often saying, well, why bother? This seems too hard. This seems too frustrating. This seems too difficult. Why bother? Why bother? Now, if you had those experiences... Have you had those moments where the pain has been quite immense and you found yourself asking, why bother? Maybe as you've pursued your education and it comes to finals or it comes to midterms and you look at the stack of things in front of you that you need to memorize before 7 a.m. the next morning and you sit there and go, why bother? I'll just watch another episode of Friends. Or you've looked at the challenge of maybe getting into shape or starting a new diet and you just can't seem to get in line with it and you eventually find yourself going, well, why bother? Why bother? And I think for many of us, if we're honest, we have many of these moments in our life, these why bother moments. Because the pain, here's, here's the honest thing about pain. Pain makes us often say, well, why bother? We can't see past the pain, we can't see through the pain, and we can't see that the pain might ever end or result in something good. So we say, why bother? Why bother? I think that's what Jesus is going to get at even today. He's going to help us see that what propels us, what pushes us, what moves us through our pain is actually knowing the purpose. Purpose. So for me and my wife, Crystal, our purpose was we wanted to have bathrooms that looked like they weren't straight out of the 1970s anymore. So we had a purpose in mind, and that purpose propelled us in many ways through the pain and the frustration of not knowing what we were doing. Or I'm sure even as you've gone through your education or you've gone through certain relationships and you've had those moments of pain, of struggle, of doubt, of frustration— What's sustained you, what's guided you, what's helped you is knowing the purpose. But it's so easy for us to lose sight of purpose. It's so easy for us to forget what God really has in store for us and why he has us going through something painful. So if you have your Bible or if you want to look at the one in front of you, we're going to be in John 12 today in verse 12 through 36. And here's what you need to know. This is a turning point in our story of the gospel of John. Uh, Many people consider John 12 to be the hinge chapter of the book of John. 
So John 1 through 11, you have these incredible signs that Jesus is doing, these miracles that he's performing. And then when you get from John 13 after is you get a slow down, up close look at the Passion Week, the last week of his life. And John 12 functions somewhat as a hinge. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, you remember that Jesus had performed his biggest miracle yet and he had raised Lazarus from the grave. Miraculous. Jesus makes it emphatically clear that I have come to raise the dead. And not just in a physical sense, but in a spiritual sense to take spiritual cadavers and to make new lives. To restore what is dead, what is lost, what is broken. And I have authority over life and death. Now, surprisingly, this message didn't go over that well with everyone. And Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, which is, 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 is the main city, is the central gathering point, especially for the Jews. And he's coming for the Passover feast, which is the holiday of all holidays. It's the biggest event on the calendar. And what you really need to understand is there is an incredible clash that's about to take place. Jesus is at the very apex of his ministry. He's at the very zenith of his popularity. And he's coming into the Passover feast. And word has spread. It has gone viral of the incredible things that this man named Jesus has been doing. And you can imagine the hope, the anticipation, the excitement that people are beginning to feel around who this guy Jesus might be. You see, the Jewish people have been groaning and waiting and praying and yearning for thousands of years for the Messiah to come, the one who would finally deliver them, who would free them. And as Rome reigns over them and oppresses them, they have been waiting, they have been groaning and wanting to be liberated. So Jesus, Jesus shows up, and you can almost, almost palpable feel the zeal that is in the air. It's almost like our 4th of July. The Jewish people are wanting liberation. They're wanting freedom from the Roman people, and they're believing that Jesus is going to provide it. They have an agenda for Jesus. What we need to see is that Jesus' agenda might not be the same. So look at verse 12 with me. Here's what it says. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So obviously, thousands and thousands of people have heard that Jesus is on his way. They're ready to show up because they believe something big, something incredible is going to happen, just like you would if you just saw a guy raise someone from the dead. So they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And the Jews found a young donkey, and, and, and Jesus, sorry, Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey. So once again, the crowd is immensely large. Think of tens of thousands of people. They've lined the streets Think of like uh, after the Seattle Seahawks won the Super Bowl and hundreds of thousands of people showed up in downtown Seattle to line the streets to adore, to praise, to glory in their accomplishment. Well, that's exactly what the Jewish people are doing. They're lining the streets. And these palm branches convey that they believe Jesus is a revolutionary military leader. They think Jesus is coming to, to have a coup of sorts, to overthrow the Roman emperor. They're tired of Caesar. Caesar has been altogether despicable to the Jewish people, and they're wanting liberation. They're wanting freedom from the bondage and oppressive reality that Caesar has imposed upon them. So what do they do? What do they do? Well, they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna. 
You know what Hosanna means? Hosanna means give salvation now. The cry of their heart is they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, deliver us. Jesus, free us. Jesus, save us. Give us salvation now. Give it. We're ready for salvation. We want a new day. We're ready to be delivered. The crowd is looking at much too small of a salvation, though, because Jesus has something much bigger in mind. Once again, this is where we see that often the agenda of Jesus is different than our agenda. And thankfully so, because the agenda, especially of the Jewish audience at this time, is much too small. Their agenda is that in the year 30 AD, that this guy would show up at a certain point in time to just free them from the Roman Empire. But Jesus' agenda is so much bigger. It's so much more grandiose. In fact, it's cosmic. Jesus is not thinking just about overthrowing the Roman Empire. Oh no. He's thinking about overthrowing Satan, sin, and death. He's thinking about not just freeing these people at this place in time. He's thinking about freeing all people in all places at all times. He has a cosmic salvation in mind. He has a salvation that has implications for you and I 2,000 years later as we sit here in Seattle. You and I should praise God that Jesus didn't have such a small view of salvation in mind. That he would free just the Jews, but rather his salvation would extend beyond that. That his salvation would extend to you and I. I just want to be honest. I know some of you are walking in here this morning and life feels very heavy You've mustered up all the courage you can to come here today. And for you, it's a battle to even walk into church, to hear another sermon, to think through another Bible passage. Maybe for you, you feel bouts of shame when you think about what Jesus might think of you. Maybe you feel guilt. Maybe you feel imprisoned by past uh, actions and behaviors and decisions and choices. Maybe for you, Jesus needs to be much bigger. Maybe for you, Jesus needs to be much greater. Maybe for you, the the message of hope today is that whatever you feel like has the final verdict and word on your life really stands under the reality of Jesus' cosmic salvation. You might feel that you've been defined by what's been done to you or what you've done, and you just want that to go away. You just want to wash it away. Jesus is offering you that and so much more. He's offering you you a much greater grace. So for you, the question is, the question for all of us is, what do you really want salvation from? What do you really want salvation from? Do you want salvation from your loneliness? Do you want salvation from your sickness? Do you want salvation from your feelings of frustration? Do you want salvation from a broken marriage or a failed relationship or a secret past or a hidden sin? Do you want salvation from what you feel like you've been lacking or that God hasn't provided? What do you want salvation from? And then what is Jesus offering you salvation of? Is your view, is your understanding of the work of Jesus Christ, as our hearts, every single one of our hearts, if you're honest, you walked in here this morning and your heart was crying out, give salvation. Whether you have a relationship with Jesus or not, you are in a place where you're saying, I want to be freed from something. I want to experience love. I want to experience grace. I want to be known. All of us want salvation. The question is really, what do we want to be saved from and to be saved to? Jesus wants us to see exactly what he means by salvation as he moves in to our next section of verses. Look at this with me. 
His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. So his disciples, for, for whatever reason, as he's riding in on a donkey and the palm branches are being waved and put down in front of him, they don't necessarily put all the connections together. They don't necessarily understand how all the dots line up with one another. But later on, they do. And often, that's the same for you and I. We don't necessarily know what Jesus is doing in our lives, and we don't necessarily know how it's all going to go together or what Jesus intends. But in hindsight, we are able to see and understand things that don't make sense in the present. I'm sure the really awful, the really tough, the really difficult, painful season of your life from a couple of years ago, you can look back and see how much more of it fits together now. And let that be an encouragement. Friends, let that be a source of faith for you. That what you're going through right now, the place where you feel like you need salvation from right now, the place that you feel like won't end, the pain that you feel like will always be there. Allow yourself to remember that there will come a day, there will come a season as you walk faithfully through it with Jesus because of the power of Jesus, that you will look back on those moments, on those days, on those times, and be able to see how things fit together. And so the crowd that had been with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, so these people had seen what Jesus did, they're super impressed, and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they'd heard he had done this sign. They'd heard that he had raised Lazarus from the dead. So this Pharisee said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look at the world that has gone after him. So what's really going on here is the Pharisees, they're looking at the crowds that Jesus is attracting. They're beginning to see all the attention that Jesus is garnering, and of course he would. He's raising people from the dead. He's turning water into wine. He's giving people sight. So the crowds are following, and the Pharisees begin to experience a grumbling nature, a frustration, a discontentment. And it's easy for us to come down hard on the Pharisees, but if we're honest, there's parts of us that become disgruntled and grumble as well. We look at Jesus and maybe we have an agenda for him or what we believe the Messiah should look like. Because if anyone knew what the Messiah was like, the Pharisees did. They had the entire Old Testament memorized. All the prophecies about who Jesus was, they had memorized and committed to memory. But yet, here is the Messiah in the flesh and blood. Here's Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, standing right in front of them, and they don't even recognize him. Isn't that crazy? I mean, that's, that's like being a veterinarian and not knowing what a horse is or a dog or a cat. Like, I, I really, I can't tell. I have no idea what it is. I mean, you spend your whole life studying God and then God shows up in the flesh and you can't see him. There is a reality for all of us that our agendas clash with the agenda of God. And when that happens, we either grow dull and we grow deceived and we grow blind we humble ourselves. We trust that Jesus has good for us. We move through those seasons with curiosity and anticipation and hope and wonder, knowing that our God loves us and is for us. Or we grow bitter because Jesus doesn't perform and do exactly what we'd want him to do. And if we're honest, still even today, we see that constantly in America where people have all sorts of agendas for Jesus. Jesus is hijacked all the time, sometimes to support a certain morality or idea that he came just so that we would live a certain lifestyle and get our act together and do the right thing and behave in the right ways. Some people hijack him for political purposes. Some people hijack him for economic purposes. 
The truth is, is you can take just about any verse you want. You can cherry pick huge parts of the Gospels. You can take your agenda, and you can copy and paste some things that Jesus said. In some ways, hijack what he's really about. Jesus would have no none of it. He's not coming to start a political coup. Jesus is not a political figure. He's not coming to start an economic revolution because Jesus is not an economist. Jesus is coming to save the world. Jesus is coming to lay down his life so that you might live. Now, are there implications for that? Yes and amen. Are there implications about how we should live and how we should steward our resources? Yes and amen. But never confuse, never forget the main point and reality of why Jesus came, which was that sinners would be saved so that we would have new life. Continue to look at the rest of the passage with me. Here's what it says in verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these Greeks came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So here's what we know about the Greeks. The Greeks were incredibly uh, fix, fixated with knowledge. They would travel all over different regions, seeking out the beliefs and ideas and customs of different people groups. The, the Greeks were known for being voracious knowledge consumers. They were great philosophers. They, they held courts where people would come and debate and talk about the ideas of the day. So obviously, word about who Jesus is and his teaching and his ideas had traveled far. And some Greeks had showed up, and they wanted to meet with Jesus. And I love what they say, just so simple, especially in verse 21. They say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. We wish to see Jesus. What a beautiful, curious, amazing, humble posture they have. They've come with an inquisitive heart to see who this person Jesus is. Maybe you're here today. Maybe you're exploring the claims of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're coming and saying, I just want to see Jesus. I hope that as we gather on Sundays and as we gather in life groups and we gather throughout different ministries we do around, around redemption, that this would really be what we were all about, that we would want to see Jesus. We'd want to hear. We'd want to learn. We'd want to humble ourselves and find out who Jesus really is. And I imagine it would have been quite a surprise, especially for these Greeks, because if you know anything about Greek mythology, which I'm sure some of you remember from junior high, where you had to read about all the Greek gods, especially Zeus and some of those guys, most of the Greek gods were very capricious. They were very nasty. They were quite spiteful. In fact, I would describe them as even being somewhat childish. And so maybe these Greek seekers were coming from a position in which they thought more about religion coming from a place where you needed to be in fear of who God was instead of believing that God had joy for you. Believing that you needed to obey God's and you needed to stay on the right side of God and you need to please God and you need to do things for God's and you needed to sacrifice for God's instead of realizing that he sacrificed all that needs to be sacrificed so that you might live. And you don't need to do anything to be accepted by him because he loves you and has grace upon grace for you. And there is no do because it's already been done in Jesus and his finished work on the cross. And religion seeps into all of us. We begin, I imagine some of these Greeks did, where you had a very transactional view of who God is, which is if I do A, B, and C, if I do these things over here, then I'll stay on the good side of God. This, this was the Greek concept. For the most part, you would want to stay on the good side of your God. Is that your understanding of Jesus? That Jesus wants you to perform certain obligations and duties and responsibilities. And if you do, then you'll stay off his naughty list. 
that, that God is more like the IRS than a loving father who knows your name and cares about you and wants you to know who he is. Or, here's where I think it gets really, I mean, it really hits me home, is religion seeps in where I think that God begins to owe me something. Because I do the right things, and I work hard, and I try to help people, and I, I love my family, and I serve, and I, whatever it is, so that if suffering comes my way, if loss comes my way, if pain comes my way, I shake my fist at God and say, God, we had a deal. God, if I held up my end of the bargain, you were supposed to give me X. God, that wasn't supposed to happen in my life. God, my dad wasn't supposed to leave. God, whatever it might be, we feel entitled to. And that's religion. Because what Jesus says is no matter what comes your way, no matter what happens, no matter what's done, you're secure in Christ. That I love you, that I'm for you, that I'm working in and through you. Beautiful. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. I love this. Jesus says, this is the hinge point. This is the turning. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So what did we see all the way back in John 2 when Jesus was doing his first miracle, and he was turning water into wine? He tells his mom, he says, woman, my hour has not come. And I, lo- I, lo- I would have loved to have heard the tone of that. Was it like, woman, my hour hasn't come? Or was it like, woman... My hour, I don't know. I always want to know what the tone, especially of that, of that verse is. But he says to his mom, my hour has not come. Jesus is changing his message here. He's saying, okay, we've been waiting. We've been waiting. Imagine kids like in the starting block on field day as they're about to do the 100-yard dash, waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, the gun goes off. That's what Jesus is saying is it's go time. We've been waiting, we've been waiting, we've been waiting, but now, now is the moment of my revelation, now is the moment of my culmination, now everyone will see my purpose and the reason why I came. And this is what he says to those Greek seekers. Truly, truly, is it up? Yeah. truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains, but if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, um, I I don't eat these, but I, I know my wife does, and other people, pomegranates. You guys ever see those things? They look like, like circles, softball, like brown softballs. And um, there's something you think should like grow in the ground, like potatoes, but they actually grow on a tree. And uh, what I've noticed, especially in Vegas, we had pomegranate. I grew up in Las Vegas. We'd have pomegranate trees everywhere. And what would happen is, you know, animals would come around and eat those seeds. And, uh, and then afterward, they would deposit them somewhere in the ground. Now, if you need to know what I mean by deposit, ask your neighbor. I won't get too much into it, but they would deposit them And out of that deposit, a new tree would spring up. Something would come out of the death of that seed. New life, something great, something more glorious than if that seed was to just remain. The seed must be buried. The seed must be lost in order for new life to be experienced. And this is the very rhythm and nature and reality of life. And this is the thing that I really want us to see here as we come back to our main idea, that purpose propels us through pain. Purpose propels us through pain. 
Here's what I want us to see is that, that as much as we fight it, especially in America, where we're driven and sometimes beat over the head with the ideas and notions of individualism and do your own thing and life's all about you and, you know, uh, consumerism and get all you can and all that, is that there is a rhythm, there is a paradox to life that you can't fight, that you can't escape, that is unavoidable. And that's that if you really want to live, you have to die. That the, the things we really love, the things that really provide, not happiness, not happiness in the, the momentary way, but happiness in the way the Puritans used to use it, a deep sense of satisfaction, of contentment, of well-being. You know, kind of like a hard day's work. There's something satisfying about it, about building and completing and constructing something. There's something satisfying and gratifying about that way more than just cheap thrills. And we know this, the, the things that really bring us alive require us to die. Think about parenting. When you have a child, when you have a child, you're dying to a good night's sleep. You're dying to ever go into the bathroom alone again. You're dying to watch TV shows that all your friends watch. You're going to be watching Dora. You're dying to driving a sports car and you will be driving a minivan. There is a death that you're choosing so that you might be alive to being a mom and dad. Or think about your education. Every time you say no to all the things that you want to do, you're dying to all these other choices so that you might live to a career accomplishment or an educational goal. Or think about starting a business. I love to sit down with entrepreneurs, people that are starting something new, maybe even an organization or a nonprofit, or I know even as we were starting redemption. There's this glorious reality in which you start something, but but man, you died to so much. It takes so much out of you, and often in ways you didn't expect, and you go on this adventure and this journey that you wouldn't trade for anything. But you die to a lot as things change. And here's the thing, too. Here's a big one that's really practical, especially for us, is in community. We all want community. We want people to know who we are. This is a city that's filled with many material resources, but is quite poor often in relationships and intimacy, and connection. But in order for there to be true community, in order for people to really know one another, we often have to die to our own schedules and our own priorities and our own convenience because convenience and intimacy often don't go together. Consumerism and community are often in opposition to one another. So if we want to be known, if we want to be loved, if we want people to, to care for us, we've got to die to our own thing, doing what we want when we want, or doing life on demand, but rather we do life in community with others. And we know this. We know this to be true. Uh, my grandma, Colleen, she passed away about six years ago. Um, and I remember being at her funeral, and every single person who I spoke with before and afterward that knew her, she had gone to the, the same Catholic church for 55 years. My grandma, Colleen, she had raised 11 kids, she had two miscarriages. She was pregnant 13 times. She had served in the library. She'd been married 63 years. And every person that would meet her would be like, your grandma had such immense, substantial, incredible character. She was a lady that radiated love and compassion and wisdom and devotion and loyalty. She was a lady who was patient and kind and sturdy and consistent she was a lady that people were just transformed by simply by being in her presence. And you know, there was something in me that was like, I really want to be that type of person. I want to be like my grandma when I get old. 
But you know, the thing that made my grandma who she was and the thing that makes us who we are is all the choices we make along the way. My grandma, she probably experienced many deaths by raising 11 kids. Deaths to a clean home, deaths to her own comfort, to her own convenience, to her own wants. I'm sure the pain was often quite immense in 63 years of marriage. In fact, I know it was. I know their story. I'm sure at times when she was serving and loving people and just being faithful and consistent, there was this tendency to say, what about me? What's in it for me? What do I get? I'll tell you what she got. My grandma was more conformed into the image of Jesus than anyone I'd ever met. She was someone who was filled with the fruit of the Spirit. She was someone who was deeply loving. She was someone that was incredibly compassionate. And I think this is what Jesus is getting at when he tells us that if we want our lives to really count, if we want our lives to really matter, then we decide where we will invest them. See, bury things in Jesus and experience a great harvest. What is it that you need to bury in Jesus today? What is it? Is there something of your own schedule? Is there something of your own priorities? Is there an area of arrogance and fear and pride that you need to bury in Jesus so that something new might come alive? Because you and I, for if you're a Christian in this room, you are united to Christ. Your life is in Christ and anything that you do in Christ is not wasted. It's not forgotten, but it's all for God's glory and your redemption. Paul knew this. Paul knew this. I mean, just look at the Apostle Paul. His life was filled with sorrow. His life was filled with pain. Paul was shipwrecked. Paul was abandoned. Paul was beaten. Paul was imprisoned. Paul was forgotten about. But yet he still said things like, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What allowed Paul to have that perspective? Because for Paul, it was his purpose, his purpose of sharing the gospel, of pointing people to Jesus that propelled him through any pain that the world could bring his way. When you know your purpose, you can go through any pain. When you know your purpose, you can go through any pain. So Jesus offers up a prayer that I want us to look at. This is what he says. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered, and others said an angel has spoken to him. And Jesus answered, This voice was come for, for, for your sake and not mine. So they just heard the Father speak. They'd heard the voice of God. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the rulers of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up, from the earth will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus wanted to make it abundantly clear. He wanted people to understand, I realize how this week is going to play out. I realize what's in store for me. Jesus was, was not under any type of illusion. He was not buying the hype. He knew the same crowd that was in love with him today would turn on him later that week. Here's the thing about crowds. Here's the thing about people that don't really know you. They're fickle. They will turn on you. They will forget you. This is our, this is our country, isn't it? Like, this is us. We love trends. I'm sure if we were to do, like, a cultural exposition right now, we could think of hundreds of trends that were cool at one point, but we disregard them the very next day. 
I could name some boy bands, and I'm sure all of you would begin to laugh and snicker, but a lot of you had their pillowcases and bought tickets to their concerts 15 years ago. I, I'm sure we could pull up pictures of you from 15 years ago, and you would, you would squirm a little bit about the way you looked or the way you dressed or the way your hair was because we're fickle, and trends change, and crowds change. Because once again, their agenda for Jesus was something completely different than Jesus' agenda. This goes even for our heroes. When they disappoint us, when they let us down, when they fail to perform, when they don't do what we wanted them to do, we are quick to turn our back on them. But Jesus knew his purpose. Jesus was clear about what his purpose was. Jesus was not mistaken about what was in store for him. So what about you? Do you know your purpose? Do you know what God is calling you to? Here's what I'd say. If your purpose can fit in a bottle, if your purpose is found in a substance, if your purpose is found in a relationship, if your purpose is found in a job, in any of your possessions, if your purpose is found even in your own intellectual capacities, it will let you down. It won't last. It'll rust. It'll decay. It'll leave you disappointed. It'll leave you frustrated. Because no, no person or thing was meant to sustain your purpose. Your purpose was to live for God, and when you begin to live for anything but God, you will eventually experience frustration, disappointment, cynicism, or bitterness. A lot of our bitterness, a lot of our cynicism, a lot of our anger, a lot of our hurt is rooted in us putting our purpose in the wrong things. And then when suffering comes, we look and say, how do I go through this? Well, you can't go through it when your purpose is something that it was never meant to be. That's why when suffering and pain often comes, what do we do, especially as a culture? We love to medicate it. We love to numb ourselves. We love to avoid it and push it into the closet and pretend like it never happened or try to forget about it or save things like, I'm, well, I'm over that. Or I'm just so over it. No, you're not. No, you're not. But Jesus offers this beautiful liberation and says, come to me, all who are weary, all who are sick, all who are tired, and I will give you rest. Rest for those who have put their purpose in the wrong places and the wrong things and the wrong persons. Jesus says, come to me, and there's life. We repent of the things that we put our purpose in that weren't Jesus. So what is your purpose? What's Jesus calling you toward? What does he have in store for you? What does he want for you? This will sustain you through so many things. If you know your purpose, you can go through the pain. And this is true. Just think about, just think about any one of your goals. Once again, if it's a, an education goal, if it's, a, if it's a, a health goal, if it's a savings goal, if it's a leadership goal, whatever it is, if you know what the purpose is, it'll sustain you. It'll push you through. It'll guide you through. And so Jesus knows that the cross is in front of him. He knows that that is his purpose. He knows that that is what is in store for him. And the cross, the cross seems altogether like complete folly. It seems ridiculous. That Jesus would know that his death awaits him, that it's right in front of him, but yet somehow he would stay focused. I don't know about you, but if I knew that a bloody, horrific, humiliating crucifixion was in front of me, I would be running the other way as fast as I could. I would be fleeing. And yet Jesus remains steadfast. Jesus moves forward. Because Jesus knows that his purpose, his purpose that would propel him through his pain, 
through the pain of a crucifixion, through the pain of separation from God, through the pain that he was about to experience, that purpose was that you and I would be saved. That he would lay down his life, that he would give his life for you and me. This is grace, friends, and this is the scandal of the cross, the very reality that Jesus didn't deserve this, but yet he eyes forward, straight ahead, pursued his purpose through the pain so that you and I would have new life. What did we say earlier? That life comes through pain. That beautiful things emerge when we're willing to go through pain, when we know what our purpose is. Parents know that. When you get married, you find that out. Any relationship eventually brings that out. And in the cross, what we particularly see is that's, that's where the Father's name will be glorified. And the cross is where Satan is defeated. In the cross is where our salvation comes from. In the cross is where our sin will be overcome. In the cross is how death will be defeated. And in the cross is where God's love and grace will be eternally displayed. This is the cross of Christ. This is the very purpose of the Gospel of John, that Jesus would go to the cross for you and for me. That he would give his life as a substitute that through his pain, you and I would have new life. So Jesus has an encouragement for us. He wants us to understand his purpose. He wants us to understand its realities and its implications for us. So look at verse 34 as we finish out our passage. So the crowd answered him, We have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? What they're wanting to do once again is have a theological argument with Jesus. We read our Old Testament, we read our Bible, and God's supposed to remain forever. So if you're talking about being lifted up, if you're talking about being crucified, once again, how can you be who you claim to be? And Jesus says to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have that light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know what he is doing. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Our story ends there with a question from the crowd and an answer for Jesus. So let's look at that very carefully, and we'll, we'll do it quickly. But look at verse 35 again. I mean, Jesus says, the light is with you. Light has been a theme all throughout the Gospel of John. All the way back from John, the first chapter of John, and we've seen it in John 7, and we've seen it also in John 8, 9, and 10. We've seen this theme of light. What Jesus is saying is the light is here with you. You're talking about what should we do? Should we take matches and light them out at noon? Or should we rather realize that everything has been lit up right now? It's bright as can be in the daytime because of the presence of Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm here with you right now. I'm here with you. Don't lose sight of that. Don't forget that I'm with you. And then he tells them, he says, shun the darkness. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. He who walks in darkness, does not know where he is going. What Jesus is saying, once again, is that if you lose sight of who Jesus is, of why he came, if you try to hijack him for a different agenda, if you think Jesus is about something else, you'll eventually grow blind to who he really is. And that happens to us all the time. I mean, that's where religion does sink in, once again, is it's thinking that Jesus was here for some other agenda rather than to save us, to reconcile us to God, to unite us to himself. And last, believe in the light. Believe in the light. Verse 36 says, While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. 
Jesus is telling you, I'm about to go to the cross. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to suffer a bloody, humiliating death. And your, your response, the reality for you, the truth for you, is to believe. To believe. Friends, what will you do with this light? What will you do with who Jesus is? Not who Jesus, who you think Jesus should be, not who culture tells you Jesus is, not who you want Jesus to be, but rather actually who he is. Because if you understand Jesus, if you understand his message, if you understand his cosmic redemptive purpose of uniting this world to him, of restoring this world, of bringing salvation, if you understand that, if you see that, you'll understand your purpose. Your purpose. That you would live for God's glory. That you would be poured out as an offering. That you are free from your sins. That you've been redeemed. That you are made new. That you have a new identity. And you have a heavenly Father who loves you. See, here's what I know. In His pain, you were given your purpose. In his pain, you were given your purpose. Because of Jesus' pain, because of his suffering, you don't have to suffer. And your life has meaning. And regardless of what comes your way, what losses you experience, what sorrows you feel, God's using them. He's using them to shape you and to conform you and to grow you and sustain you. Because of his pain, you've been made free. Because of his pain, you're a child of God. Because of his pain, you won't experience God's pain. You'll experience new life. You'll experience grace. You'll experience redemption. So my question for each one of us is to to think, what is that area? What's that place in our lives where we need to return to the purpose of why God's made us to push us through the pain? If you're a mom or a dad, and parenting has seemed really hard for you recently, maybe it's returning to that purpose that these are blessings that God has given me. And I get a short window to make disciples out of them and point them to the Lord and to love them and encourage them and to see them grow up. Maybe if you're single and you feel like your biggest pain is loneliness, and when will you be married and when will your life change? You can return to the purpose that the Lord loves you that he knows what's in store for you, that you don't have to be afraid of the future, and that your life matters right now where you're at. And you can make an impact. You can point people to the Lord. See, if we go through life and when we encounter pain, we think, why bother? This is pointless. Or even as some religions will tell you, this is an illusion. It's really not pain at all. We deny what is true. And what's true is if you know your purpose, that will push you through the pain. And because of the pain of Jesus, you have purpose.